When I was a undergrad in college, I was a double major. I was a communication theology major, which meant I had to take all of the communication classes as well as the theology classes. I went to a Christian college, and uh, it also meant that I was required to take what was considered probably the most difficult class in the school of theology, and that class was systematic theology. And systematic theology was difficult because it was an overabundance of information. Uh, What systematic theology does is it takes all of the doctrines that we believe, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the church, all of the doctrines we believe, and it tries to harmonize them. It tries to systematize them, to get them to where they are consistent all the way through our beliefs so that uh, they fit, so that there's not any uh, inconsistencies or not any time that they uh, don't flow together. Well, the problem with that is uh, that's a... Western way of thinking, and we are Western in, in, in our thinking. We like everything to fit in little boxes. We like everything to make sense. We like everything to flow perfectly. But when you look at Eastern literature, it doesn't fit that way. It wasn't written that way. And the Bible is a Eastern literature, Middle Eastern literature. And so it has some Eastern thought to it. And so there are times that you just can't systematize them. So that's what made systematic theology so, so much of a struggle and so much of a difficulty for so many people because we have been so conditioned for everything to make sense, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And sometimes the Bible just doesn't flow that way. Well, in systematic theology, we had one project, one major project that every student had to do. Uh, It was a 50-page paper, and uh, you had to take one of the doctrines or a doctrine, and you had to explain it theologically and historically, and you had to come down on one side of interpretation or the other. And you had to explain why you came down on that side. And, and those of you that are in master's levels classes or if you've gone on to your PhD, you know that whenever you have to write a long paper, the, especially about something so extensive, as narrow as you can get, as, as specific as you can get, the better. Because when you have to write about something that's broad, you, you can just write all day. And, and a 50-page paper, for those that are writing that way, it's not a limitation. Uh, it's a difficulty, but not because you can't get to 50 pages, but because you have to keep it to 50 pages. So I tried to choose a topic that I thought was relative to what was going on, something that was a hot-button issue at the time, uh, and something I thought I'd find a lot of information on. And my topic was divorced ministers. And I wanted to answer the question, could someone who is divorced serve as a pastor or as a minister? Or even could someone who is already serving as a pastor, already serving in the ministry, get divorced and remain in the ministry or remain in the pastorate? Now this was in the early 80s, mid 80s, and you have to remember back then there were several big name pastors, evangelical pastors that were going through marriage issues, that were going through divorce issues, that were going through uh, struggles in their relationships. And some of them had gone through divorce and remained in the pulpit or remained in their ministry and it was causing some conflict. You also have to remember that in that time and probably even today in a lot of Southern Baptist churches, you couldn't even be a deacon if you were divorced. And I know Southern Baptist churches that you couldn't teach Sunday school if you were divorced. And so this was a controversial issue. And it was an issue that I thought would be easy to deal with, but it became more difficult the more I dove into it. It was also a personal issue. Uh, Because you see, to look at the issue of divorced pastors, you had to look at two separate theologies. You had to look at the understanding of what is the requirement of a minister 
but also what does the Bible say about divorce? And, and I was a child of divorce. At that time, I, I was still just coming out of my family going through a divorce. And as the oldest child with younger brothers and sisters, they were dealing with the ramifications of a divorce that had happened just a couple of years before I wrote this paper. So it was still fresh in my mind. I was also dating a girl who ended up being my wife who was the daughter of a divorced pastor. Her father had come out of seminary and started his first church and his wife left her, left him. Kim's mom just, just left the family, just left him. And so he got out of ministry for about 20 years. But at the time of the paper, he had gone back into ministry and was in a church. And I also had a great friend in the church I was serving in at the time, my first church, uh, who, before he became a Christian, had gotten a divorce. He had gone through a mess in his life and gotten a divorce, and then he became a Christian, turned his life around, and, and got married, and everything was going great. And he was dealing with a call, should I be a minister? And he was in his young 30s. But many in the church, especially in the church I was serving in, were telling him, you are disqualified from serving. So you see, for me, it wasn't just a, a theological paper. It was a personal paper. It was a paper that I was going to try to answer questions that I was wrestling with and questions that I thought I knew the answers to, but the more I got into Scripture, the more confusing and complex it became. Because you see, the issue of divorce in the Bible is not black and white. It's not cut and dry. It's not something that you can just say, here's the answer. It is complex, but it's also heart-wrenching. It's also soul-searching. It's also daunting. You see, in a church, I doubt there is any subject that you could talk about that is probably more painful to more people than the topic of divorce. If we were honest in this room this morning, probably every one of us has been touched in some way or another by divorce. If it hasn't visited your home, then you have family members that have been divorced. You have friends that have been divorced. You have co-workers who have been divorced. You have neighbors that have gone through divorce. Almost every one of us in this room has been touched by divorce. Matter of fact, statistics tell us today that 25%, one out of every four American adult, has gone through a divorce. Survey found out five years ago that one out of every three marriages end in divorce in the United States of America. Although a study came out last week that showed that the divorce rates this last year are the lowest in the last 35 years. So maybe God's turning some things around. But divorce is a reality. But just because divorce is fairly common, just because it has become a reality in our culture today, does not make it any less painful. Does not make it any less of a struggle or devastating to those who are involved. Matter of fact, if you wanted to look at the stress level tests that they, they examine, things that come into our life that cause the most stress, divorce is the number two stressor on an individual, right behind the loss of a spouse to death or a child to death. Divorce is higher on the stress level than losing a job, going to jail, declaring bankruptcy. Divorce causes incredible stress. It causes incredible consequences for the families that are dealing with it. Matter of fact, I think it would be fair to say that divorce is a hellish experience. And the Bible tells us, and it's very clear, that God never intended for His children to experience the pain and stress of divorce. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. Divorce is not God's will. It's not part of God's plan. But yet we live in a fallen and messed up world. So for us, this morning, it's a reality. 
And the interesting thing about the subject is, to those that were listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it was just as much a reality. Because you see, divorce is not anything new. So this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about the issue. But more importantly, not just what He had to say, but why He said what He said and what we can learn from it. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 5. We're continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving us these examples of, uh, of what His new covenant looks like. Remember, we've studied that Jesus is calling us to surpass the law in our lifestyle because God's more concerned now with those of us that are believers with not just our actions, but with our hearts. He's concerned with our motives because you see, the change that God is building in our life takes place in our hearts. We are called to be transformed from the inside out. And if our hearts get corrupted, then it doesn't matter how we look on the outside. It doesn't matter all of the things we do that look good. If you have a corrupted heart, your relationship with God is destroyed. And so he's introducing these new concepts. And to play off of that, he's giving some illustrations to go along with it. Now I know, before I ever begin reading, this is a painful subject. This is one of those things that when I was preparing this whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I thought, maybe I can just skip through it. Maybe I can just tap it in to the last study that we did and just go by because I know it sometimes can bring guilt, it can bring blame, it can bring difficulties in people's lives. That's not my intent this morning. Matter of fact, my intent is just the opposite. What I want to do is study what Jesus said. And as we study what Jesus said, discover the freedom and the truth that comes from His words. Because in His words, the Bible tells us there is freedom. And through His words, we are set free. Now, if you were with us last week, this actually, this passage on divorce that we're going to read here in a moment, goes with last week's topic. If you remember, back in, we looked at verse 27 to 30, uh, it dealt with adultery, it dealt with sexual lust, it dealt with the idea of how lust in our heart corrupts our heart, and the consequences of that lust are just as bad in our relationship to God as adultery. But what Jesus was trying to get across last week in that study is that God is very concerned about the vows and the commitments that we make. Not just the vows and commitments we make to Him, but the vows and commitments we make to one another. Our marriage vows. God takes marriage very seriously, and we should too. We've discovered that, and hopefully you understand, that when you took your wedding vows, you were not just making a covenant with your spouse. You were making a covenant with your spouse to God. The whole idea of marriage was set up so that men and women would come together as one and covenant with God that this will be a relationship till death do us part. But sin got in the way, and because of sin, we deal with divorce. So we'll see what Jesus says about it. Verse 31. It should be in your order of service if you have that, but if you want to read along, it should be a Bible under the pew in front of you. Uh, It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that comes from Deuteronomy 24, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But remember, he goes on, it has been said with what they believed, what they had heard. And then he's going to answer back by saying, I say to you, I tell you. So he answers in verse 32, but I tell you, if anyone divorces his wife, except for marital infidelity, marital unfaithfulness, this causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries that divorced woman... commits adultery. Now that's a harsh statement. It's a harsh stand. That's a harsh thing for us to understand. And before we can really understand it, I think we need to go back and understand what Jesus' listeners there in the Sermon on the Mount were were in, the context they were in, the the understanding of what they were going through. It helps us 
Grab a hold of what Jesus is trying to teach us this morning. Now, most of you understand that marriage was uh, introduced, it was uh, brought together with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. When Adam and Eve came together, God constituted the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And the idea behind marriage was this idea of leave, cleave, and become. And you can go back and read Genesis chapter 2, 24, 25. He talks about that a man and a woman are to leave everything behind their mother and their father and their past, everything behind, and cleave to their spouse. And that idea of cleave is a picture of glue, that they are to stick together. It is the picture of two becoming one. They are becoming. They are becoming one flesh. It is two desires becoming one desire. It is two uh, dreams becoming one dream. It is two purposes becoming one purpose. And when God said this comes together as a perfect union, one flesh, it is till death do us part. When God constituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2, there was no idea of, of these are the things that you can do to get out of marriage. But over time, sin entered into the world and sin corrupted marriage. Sin corrupted relationships. It corrupted what marriage meant. So that by the time that Moses came along, men had begun to marry concubines, which concubines in the Bible is not necessarily a prostitute. Sometimes it's called a, a half-wife. It's a wife that sometimes they spend time in one home, sometimes they spend time in another. Many men in the Old Testament before the time of Moses and after the time of Moses had more than one wife. Some had two or three. And I've heard people say, well, doesn't that justify polygamy? Doesn't that justify having more than one spouse? Listen, that wasn't God's will. They picked that up from the corrupt cultures that they were around, the pagan cultures. But by the time that Moses came along, many men had two or three or four or five wives and many other concubines. And so when they began to set down the law, when they began to take the Ten Commandments and break it down into law, they had to deal with this issue of multiple wives and the issue of divorce. And so Moses wrote out the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I want to read that to you. And so this is the law that Jesus is dealing with that when he comes to in the Sermon on the Mount. Deuteronomy 24, listen, verse 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her off from his house, and if after she leaves the house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from the house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, for that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, do you think they came a little far from the leave and cleave and become? Did that not sound like a bunch of lawyer gibberish? And no offense if you're a lawyer, but didn't it sound legal there? I mean, he's saying, listen, if a man divorces his wife because she becomes indecent to him or does something wrong to him and she goes to another man and she divorces him, but that wife can't come back to the first man. Apparently they are writing because this had become an issue. They had stretched out what God had really intended for marriage to be. And instead of looking at what God made marriage to be, they were looking at ways to get out of marriage. So that it had come to the idea that if any wife commits something indecent and that word became stretched to the point that they meant that if your wife uh, displeased you, if she got into an argument with you, if she did something that you didn't want her to do, you could write out a certificate of divorce, and this is the men, the men could write out a certificate of divorce and send her out of the house. And he would no longer be responsible for what was going on. So this is the culture that Jesus comes into in the Sermon on the Mount. And to make matters worse, by the time Jesus comes along, we learned the last couple of weeks that the Pharisees would take these laws 
and they would expand them. Remember, they took the Ten Commandments and they made it 613 commandments. And so by the time Jesus comes along, this had become controversial because in Jewish thought, there had been two schools developed. There was the school, the rabbi school of Shammai, and the rabbi school of Shammai took that word indecent and said that a man can only divorce his woman on the issue of adultery. He took indecent to mean that it only held up for if there was adultery or abuse could a marriage covenant be broken. There was another school which was named after Rabbi Hillel. It was the Hillel school and it was the most popular version of what was going on in Jesus' day. You see, Rabbi Hillel said that indecent means anything to the point that a man could divorce his woman for any reason whatsoever. And they give some illustrations in their laws in the Talmud. It says if your wife puts too much salt in your meal, send her away. If your wife displeased you in any way, if she disrespected you, send her away. You men aren't amen and you must be sitting next to your wife, right? <laughs> if she disrespects or talks bad about your parents, her in-laws, send her away. If she gains weight, if she lets herself go, send her away. It had gotten so out of control that when Jesus is sitting here and they are talking about divorce, that most of the men that were around him had been divorced from their first wife. Most were on their second or their third wives because it had become so rampant because the school of Hillel had spread so wide. Now before you start laughing, before we say that's crazy, sounds a lot like the United States today, doesn't it? I began to go and look online at, at reasons that people gave for divorce, and you wouldn't believe some of the reasons. Now, in, in every state but one in the United States of America, except for South Dakota, you can file no-fault divorce now. You don't even have to give a reason. But before then, you used to have to give a reason. And I went down and looked at some of the craziest reasons. There was a man in Kentucky that divorced his wife because every time he got a hamburger, he would take the onions off and she would slap his head because she wanted him to eat onions on his hamburger. That was in his divorce report. There was a woman in Georgia who said she wanted to divorce her husband because when they would drive by his ex-girlfriend's house, he would make her duck under the dashboard of the car. <laughs> she wanted a divorce. There was a woman in North Carolina that wanted a divorce from her husband because he was much too affectionate and he liked game shows. That was written on her report. You see, Jesus is saying, listen, something is wrong. We read this and we can read and say, well, maybe Jesus here is just trying to uh, say that he is with the Hillel school, but that's not really what he's trying to say. He's not saying, I'm with Shammai, I'm with Hillel. What he's saying is, all of you have lost it. And what he says to us this morning is that you and I have lost focus with what God thinks is important. He's trying to help us understand that instead of being worried about what grounds that we should find for divorce, instead of being worried about offenses that we find in our marriage that could lead to divorce, we really need to focus on saving and enhancing and growing our marriages. You see, he's saying it's not important what the grounds for divorce are. It's not important how offended you are. What is important is how much effort and work and heart are you putting into the commitment that you made when you stood before God. Now, how do we know that? Because later on in Matthew, he's confronted by some of the school of Hillel. In Matthew chapter 19, the school of Hillel Pharisees come to him and say, Listen, 
What do you say about divorce? Listen to what he says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the school of Hillel. Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And He said, this is a reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Leave and be united to his wife. Cleave and the two become one. Become. So that they are no longer two, but they are now one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They asked again, why then did Moses command a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answered this way, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts had grown hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and that's adultery, and marries another woman, he commits adultery. And the disciples, I love this in verse 10, the disciples that were standing there said, if that's the situation, it's better not to marry. The disciples came out with a wisdom and said, if that's such a big deal, then it's better not ever to get into it in the first place. See, what Jesus wanted us to understand is that marriage is serious. It's not something that he takes lightly. It's not something that that he thinks that we should just go through. Because when we commit ourselves one to another before God, we are committing ourselves to a lifelong covenant. See, Jesus wants us to understand that we need to take our commitments and our covenants to our spouse seriously. You see, much like today, in Jesus' day, many would just choose to walk off. If things got difficult, if times got tough, if if it didn't turn out like they had planned, if, if it wasn't their dreams that they'd had when they were a kid and everything wasn't working out just perfect, then it was easier just to get up and walk away. When their spouse became something that that wasn't like they were when they got married, if things got out of control, if they got complicated, when life got difficult, it was much easier to write a certificate of divorce and start over. And Jesus is saying it can't be that way, especially for those who call themselves Christ followers, especially for those who say that they want to live out the Beatitudes, especially for those who say that they are trying to be more like Christ in everything that they do. Now, as I wrapped up my paper in systematic theology, I came to understand that there are reasons where God says divorce is allowed. There are reasons in the Bible that teach that you can break the covenant of marriage without it being a sin. But even in those circumstances, it still breaks God's heart because it's never God's will for divorce to take place. Even when there's adultery, even when there are issues that are out of control, it is never God's will for that to happen. And even if it's not a sin, the consequences of that divorce are still around. The consequences, the devastation, the difficulties that we face when we take that choice, not only on us, but on our children. And on our children's children. You see, I began to realize that not only does God hate divorce, He thinks marriage is a big deal. Now, what were those reasons that I discovered? Well, it's pretty simple to understand by reading Jesus' words, both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, that adultery was one of the reasons. If there is a committing adultery, if someone replaces their spouse sexually with someone else, now, I know people today say, well, but I've committed adultery emotionally. doesn't go into emotional. He talks about physical. Now, does that make emotional relationships with somebody that's not your spouse healthy? No. 
But he's saying that you can divorce, you can break the covenant that God has made with you and not sin if someone commits adultery. Is that what God wants? No. And he gives us a beautiful illustration of that in the book of Hosea and Hosea's life and how he is called to go back to his wife who has cheated on him and, and, and overboard. I don't have time to go into it, but it's a beautiful picture of a marriage that had crumbled and had been devastated coming back together. He also gives the example of desertion. Paul talks about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The whole chapter deals with divorce, deals with marriage. And in that passage, in verse 15, he relates that if there is desertion on the part of one's spouse, if they leave, especially if they're not a believer, if they walk away, then that is grounds for that person to be allowed to divorce and remarry. Because you see, the issue is always remarriage. The issue wasn't really divorce as much as it was remarriage because if you are divorcing for reasons that are beyond what God has laid out, then you are actually committing adultery because you don't have the grounds to commit a remarriage. Now, desertion is a crazy word, and many theologians through the years have broke it down to say that not only does it mean one person abandoning the other, but it can also mean someone deserting the relationship emotionally. It can mean that, that one spouse, you know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, matter of fact, that your body is not yours. It belongs to your spouse. You see, my body is my spouse's, her body is mine. Why? Because we are one flesh. And when I choose to keep my body from my spouse, that can be interpreted as desertion. When I choose to punish my spouse by saying, uh, you're not getting all of this, and I know that's what you want. You can't have it. That can be interpreted as desertion. And in many places, it can be an idea that could bring about divorce. Now, it can bring it about, but it's not God's good and perfect will. It's not what God wants for our relationship. You see, God wants us to work on it. Now, many people also include physical and verbal abuse in this category. That if there is physical abuse, especially, and if there's verbal abuse, then that is a means of desertion. But you see, what Jesus wants us to understand is while there are examples where marriages are dissolved, it's not what he wants, and it should always be a last resort. Now I want you to listen to me. If you're here this morning and you've been divorced, if you've been through a divorce in a relationship, you know the pain, you know the struggle, you know the suffering that comes from divorce, divorce firsthand. Let me just say this to you. You are not a second-class Christian. I want you to listen to me. The church for too long made people that were divorced second-class Christians. We got it wrong. See, while divorce breaks God's heart, while divorce can be a sin, it, it is just one sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. It doesn't make them persona non grata. And I know in many churches that divorce became an issue, especially in the last 15 or 20 years, that, that it was a public sin because a couple that had been married was going through a divorce. And what happened is everyone in the church allowed that to become an issue where we began to judge those people. Instead of looking, listen, all of us have sinned. So understand that if you are divorced, you are just as important to the body of Christ as anyone else. Because there's not one of us in this room that hasn't sinned, that hasn't messed up, that hasn't blown it. I would encourage you if you've been divorced, learn from what mistakes you made. Learn the lessons that God is calling you to learn and don't make them again. Trust God. And please hear my heart. Because I, I counsel so many marriages, I counsel so many divorces trying to save marriages. 
Those of you that have been through divorce, you need to understand that it is time for you to move past the guilt and the blame and the what-ifs. Because that's not God's heart for you. See, we worship a God who is all about grace and forgiveness and next chances. And so many believers, and the church didn't do any good, so many believers that have walked through divorce, have beaten themselves up to the point that they feel like, I can't serve anymore. I'm not as good as others. I've made mistakes. And they allow this guilt to overwhelm them. You will never be who God's called you to be, divorced person, until you move past that blame. Now listen to me. If you are divorced, before you rush in to marriage number two or marriage number three or marriage number four, You need to fix what caused marriage one number one to go away. Do you know the divorce rates for second marriages is double the divorce rate for first marriages? Do you know the divorce rate for third marriages is double the divorce rate of second marriages? Why? Because we've made divorce so easy that people just simply get out of it instead of examining what caused the first marriage to fall apart. And they bring the issues that caused the first marriage to fall apart into the second marriage, thinking that everything is going to be okay. You see, the problem for most of us, and the reason that divorce is a reality, is not our spouse, it's us. And if we don't fix us, if we're not honest about what we are and who God's calling us to be, then we bring the same issues that we messed up in marriage number one into marriage number two. For those of you here this morning that are in a messed up marriage, a troubled marriage, a struggling marriage, it's a big club. There are no perfect marriages. There are no perfect relationships. Why? Because we're all hot messes. We're all selfish We're all sinful. We all want what we want. And it takes every moment of every day to overcome that. Now, if you're in a marriage that is in trouble, a marriage that maybe adultery is a place, maybe there's been adultery in the past, maybe there has been desertion in the past, I I would tell you, right now, get help. Get help. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. Don't act like if you can ignore these issues that they're going to go away. They won't. Get help. 87% of all marriages that are dealing with adultery or desertion, when they get help and work to put them back together, 87% of them go on to be happy and productive marriages. But it requires work and it requires a commitment to say, we've got to fix this. You see, one of the things in in the church that breaks my heart is too many Christians settle for good marriages. We settle for okay marriage when God says that marriage is to be great. Now, that doesn't mean every moment of every day. All of us are going to have bad days and bad moments in our marriage. But overall, marriage is supposed to be an incredible time of unity between a husband and a wife. And we set the bar so low that we're raising our kids up to expect this. When we need to be raising our kids up to look at what the Bible says about marriage and what the Bible says about the beauty of marriage and, and relationships that take place in marriage, the bar should be up here. So that instead of rushing to get this, our kids are waiting until God presents this. Listen, if you're in a marriage that is on the verge of breakup, don't pass go, don't hesitate, get help now. 
before it's too late. If there's abuse in your relationship, there's physical abuse, you need to get help now or get out. Listen, one of the greatest mistakes pastors like me have made is we've erred on the side of saying that you've got to stay married no matter what. That's wrong. And I've had pastor friends that have told women who are in physically abusive relationships, if you just pray for your husband, if you just pray for it to get better, it will get better. Stay and let God fix it. Listen, if God wants to fix him, let God fix him. But you get out. If there's verbal abuse in the relationship, you need to get help. Stop settling. You see, all that Jesus is trying to teach us here is that marriage is something so incredible that we should all get excited about being a part of it. We should stop taking it for granted. We should stop looking for reasons to get out. We should stop worrying about things that that someone else is doing in their marriage and fix what we have. We've taken it so lightly for so long that we've missed out on how beautiful God wants marriage to be. You see, we need to take our vow seriously. You stood before God in a room full of witnesses and said, till death do us part. Sickness and health, good and bad. Jesus wants us to live up to our commitments. I hear people all the time come to my office and say, listen, pastor, surely God doesn't want me to be in an unhappy relationship. Surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Listen, happiness is a feeling and it comes and goes. God is more concerned with you being holy than he is you being happy. God is more concerned about you living up to your commitments and taking the things that he takes serious, seriously. I hope it's not the first time you've heard it, but love is a choice. And making a marriage work is a choice. Lust is a feeling. And we saw what he said about lust last week. In a marriage that's healthy, feelings come and feelings go, but commitment and respect build a foundation. Listen to me, husband. Listen to me, wife. If you think the grass is greener somewhere else, it's not. Maybe you need to fertilize and water the grass where you are before you start looking next door. And if you're using divorce as a threat to get your spouse to do something, to be something they're not, you're in sin and you need to repent. Because for a healthy marriage to grow, divorce should never be brought on the table prematurely. It should never be introduced. It should never be talked about because God takes it seriously. Now listen, lastly, if you're here today and you're not married, this should help you understand that it's serious and important and you need to take your time. Take it serious. Don't rush into something just because everybody else is. Or because you hit a certain birthday and that's when everybody's supposed to get married. Or or because all of your friends are getting married and you're going to get left behind. You focus on God. Focus on living out the Beatitudes. Focus on loving God with everything that you have. And God will take care of it when the time is right. You see, here's the bottom line, church. Jesus is reminding us that we need to take our vows as seriously as He does. And I don't know what's going on in your marriage today. I don't know what's gone on in your marriages in the past. But I know what Jesus is saying to us is that if you are a Christ follower, if you are going to be a light in the darkness, if you are going to be salt to a world that needs salt, 
needs flavor, then you've got to let your marriage be an example of how Christ loves each one of us. Did you know that's how big a deal marriage is to God? It's so important to Him that when He looked at all the metaphors in this world to compare how He loves us, He chose marriage. Go read what He says in Ephesians chapter 6. That's why he tells you, husbands, love your wife the way Christ loves your church. Wives, submit to your husbands as we submit to, to the church. Submit to Jesus. God takes it seriously. See what Jesus was telling him, back to the end and I'm done. Jesus was saying, you got it all wrong. See, they were coming saying, when can we get a divorce? When, when is it okay? When is it okay? It's the same question we ask all the time. When is it a sin? How far is too far? What can I do to get away with with the wrong activity and still be okay with God? When you get to that point that you're worried how close you can get to making a mistake without making a mistake, you're on the wrong path. Because for the Christian, the question is always, how can I fall in love with Jesus? Because if I'm always worried about how close I can get to Jesus, I don't worry about falling into the fire. And for you and I, the question is not, When does a marriage stop being a marriage? The question for you and I is what am I doing to make my marriage all that God is saying it's supposed to be? Let's pray.